Let's look at the word of the Lord this morning. We pick up in Psalm 145 with verse 8. Our call to worship, of course, took us through the first seven verses. And now we continue with our scripture reading in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our series this spring is a series taken from the book of Psalms, select Psalms that we are calling the lyrics of knowing God. The lyrics, the words, the phrases, the melody of praise, the lyrics of knowing God. And we've mentioned almost every time we've mentioned one of these Psalms, we've talked about how theologically loaded the Psalms are. They tell us about everything that we would need to know about the Lord Himself. There is no doctrine of God taught in the New Testament that hasn't already been proclaimed in the lyrics of the Psalms. All the great attributes of God, not only who He is, but what he has done, his works, his deeds, his acts. And this psalm, of course, is a wonderful psalm of summary of many of those things. And there's a couple of things I want you to notice, then we're going to bear down on one verse. One of the things that I delight in, as you know, is I delight in finding in the psalms Christ and his church, God's people. I don't think there's any clearer place anywhere in the Bible that 1,000 years before Christ, and that's when the Psalms were written approximately a millennium before Christ came as a babe in Bethlehem and lived among us and died upon a cross, buried in a tomb, raised from the grave and ascended to heaven. Before the coming of Christ, there are prophecies and predictions that tell us something about the nature of Christ and His work and His kingdom. 
when Christ came, one of the things that he talked about the most, because he centered almost all of his preaching, teaching, and ministry around a concept, around a grand idea, around a great reality, and that is his kingdom, the kingdom of God. He came as the king who was the personification and the embodiment of the kingdom itself. When the king is here, the kingdom is here. He bears in his body the majesty and the royalty of the king. And these words here uh, talk about it in beautiful language. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. That is the description of the worshiping church from the days of their infancy. God's people gathered together to worship and to praise Him. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Preaching the gospel is telling of the glory of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, the apostles use the phrase, the kingdom of God. We are concerned about governments, civil governments, world governments, national governments, and how they are configured, and how they are confederated, and how they are structured, and how they are carried out. Systems of government, the personalities of government. That's because there is wired within our soul a desire for a king. God's people wanted a king. And God has wired us for a king. I don't care how many efforts we make at constituting a democracy or some other form of government. We always tend to somehow want to focus in on a single solitary individual and make that individual the prince, the king, the object of our aspirations, our desires, the one to whom we look for safety and security and for provision. And that's what we do. We're wired that way. Even in our own country, which is the world's greatest democracy, philosophically laid out in such a way and structured in such a way that the people make the choice, but all they seem to want to think about is a single individual, a president. And he gets an inordinate amount of attention and people forget altogether the structures of democracy and move toward that urge of the soul to have someone high and lifted up, someone at the forefront, some vanguard leader that will bring us all the things we need. And we're willing to follow that person. And that's what God has given us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ insisted that he was the king, but he insisted that his kingdom was not of this world. It was not a mundane kingdom. It was not a king like you saw in Caesar or the Pharaoh. It was certainly not a king as you saw in the Baal of the Old Testament, Molech the king but it was a unique king, a savior king, a king who would deliver his people first of all, and then he would be a protector king who would protect his people, and then a provider 
king, one who would give them everything they need. And that's what the Psalm here, he talks about, open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. But listen to what it says more about this kingdom. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. That is gospel preaching. To make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. We celebrate this morning basically a generation. One of my favorite things that said about King David in the book of Acts, it said that King David served the Lord in his generation. Hundreds of years, thousands of years preceded it. Who knows how many years will follow it, but there is a work to be done for the kingdom of God and for the king in a generation. Now, generation is kind of a slippery term. <laughs> in the Old Testament and in the Bible, typically you think of a generation as 40 years. The generation that came out of Egypt was a 40-year generation. We think of in terms of the number 40 and the representation of a generation. And that's what uh, the old demographers in a slower pace of time probably meant. But you know today our graphs and the contours of change in our lifetime sort of shorten that up. A generation in technology used to be about 18 months and now it's about six months. And who knows when it'll be about six weeks when a generation in technology will change. Well, modern American demographers think of about 20 years as a generation. The baby boom generation from 46 to 64, the years of their birth, and then the Gen X and on down through the millennials. And in about a 20-year span is considered a generation. So we don't need to think much beyond that. This church has served the Lord in that generation, the 25 years that we have been here as a particular church, preaching the gospel, spreading the gospel, planting churches, building ministries, serving our community. This church has had a wonderful history of not only holding what we have here, but reaching way beyond these four magnificent walls through building and planting churches. But one of the most important observations that I've made in my years here, and I've been here just short of 20 of those 25, is how the Lord raises up in the hearts of His people ministries. I remember serving briefly on the session for a couple of years before I came on the staff. And I remember being in those meetings, and almost in every session meeting, there would be a ministry that would be introduced to the elders and the elders would be able to hear about it and to give some guidance to it and perhaps approve of it if it was necessary for that kind of action, but at least pray for the ministry. And it would be something that had welled up within the hearts of one of, one of the members and they would come and we would hear about that ministry and they would go forth and it wasn't something that would appear necessarily in the budget of the church. It was not necessarily something that would have to have a staff associated with it, and it wouldn't have a necessarily a high degree of visibility. 
except maybe with a ministry or missionary moment from time to time, we would hear about these organizations, but things that were establishing justice, providing mercy, not only in Dallas area, but all around the world. People who God had seized upon their hearts and called them into a particular thing, and they put their life and their time, and in many cases, a good portion of their money into making that work of the kingdom of God go forth. And this church seemed to be kind of, a, I don't know what the good word for it, it was almost like a, a, um, an incubator <laughs> for for that kind of ministry, in addition to all the things that this church does formally and structurally. The Lord has blessed this church and brought many people our way who have been here for a time, maybe five years or a few years, and been inspired and been anchored and been encouraged and been edified and have immensely grown in the Lord and have established the relationships and connections that have then sent them forth there in other parts of the world now. We have a lot of people that used to be here, they're not here anymore. They're in foreign countries, they're in Florida, they're in California, they're in New England. They're in ministries all over where the Lord brought them here and gave them what they needed at that time in order to move forward and to move out and to move around. And I think that's part of what it means to serve the Lord in your generation. Um, you and I didn't live in the age of St. Paul or the age of St. Augustine or in the age of Spurgeon even. We've been sort of stuck with our generation. Our generation has been the latter half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. And times and, and the culture is changing rapidly, uh, frighteningly uh, rapidly. And we are here in this time, in this place to serve the Lord. The Lord needed your 70-year-old wisdom in 2016 when he assigned your birthday back in the day. He wanted you to come of age and be a particular parent or grandparent or great-grandparent or uncle to someone and be a member of this church at this time in order to maximize that which you can do for Him. And that's what it means to serve the Lord in our generation. Because one of these days we're all going to end up at the National Cemetery or Restland or Sparkman Hillcrest or one of those places in a beautiful, beautiful, peaceful garden. But it will not be our moment of, of opportunity. Night cometh when no man can work, the Lord has told us. So that's one of three things I wanted to say, and I think that just may be about all I get to say. <laughs> Except let me point out just one verse real quick, if, if, if I might. And that's that very, very first verse we looked at, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This may have been King David's favorite verse because not only will you find him speaking in this terms of these four attributes of God. Oh, by the way, the second thing I want to say, I'll just mention it, is read through this thing and see how many times it says something about the Lord, some attribute of the Lord. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord is good to all. Your kingdom is an afterlife. Verse 13, the Lord is faithful. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all things. 
Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's kind. The Lord is near. The Lord preserves. He hears and so forth. You see, it's telling us so much about the Lord. And that's really, I think, the, the heart of the message is that there is a, there is a, a disposition in God that moves out to us and to the world. And that, dispens- uh, that uh, uh, disposition of heart is the grace of God, the graciousness. And that's what this first word here is, the Lord is gracious. It's the word hanan in the Hebrew. And it's a rich word, and I just sort of jotted down some things because I didn't think I'd remember it, but it is a heartfelt response to give something to someone in need. That's literally what the word means. There, there's, there's, there's an aching and there's a longing, there's a desire in the heart of God to bestow something, a gift. And in the New Testament, the word charis, the word gift, translates the word grace most of the time. God wants to give. He's just got something in his soul that wants to pour out upon someone who is in need. And it's the idea of a superior wanting to to, uh, give to and to help and to bless and to pick up and to restore to wholeness an inferior. And we see it in that last word, which we won't look at this morning, but he talks about steadfast love. You remember in Psalm 107, it talks about we ought to give thanks for the steadfast love of the Lord. In Psalm 36, it says, over and over in 136, it says the the, uh, steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Well, that's that thing that says that God makes a covenant and He's faithful to that covenant and He won't ever move away from that covenant. The idea of, of, of God being gracious is the fundamental idea of what God is in His soul and in His desires. All that God does moves out of a heart of grace. He wants to give. It means to to give something to someone in need. It is an action. It's not just a feeling, but it it, it manifests itself in in an act, in an event. From a superior to an inferior who has a real need, the inferior has a real need, but no claim to the gift. How did you get that? We have a a real need, but we have no claim. We have no right. It must be bestowed upon us by a free, gracious God. One of the interesting things is how enriched this word is, this word hanan in the Hebrew, how it has become uh, a component of names. People are named. 51 names in the Bible come from this particular root word speaking of the graciousness of God. The Lord is gracious. And even in, in our own cultures, I wrote some of these down. The word um, Hanan is preserved in names in our cultures with women's names. It's the, the, basically the name Hannah. And from that we get Anna, Ann, Nan, Nancy, Anita in Spanish, Annette in French. They're all basically this root idea of gracious. The Lord is gracious. And these names together constitute the most common names that we have across the globe for women. Then, among the men, it's the basic word Johanan. Johanan or Hanan. 
And of course, we all recognize it very quickly as the word for John, Jean in the French, Giovanni in the Italian, Juan in Spanish, Johan or Johan in Swedish, Hans in German, Jan in Dutch, and Ivan or Ivan in Russian. It means grace. The giving of the grace of God. Now, when I said that this was probably uh, David's favorite verse of Scripture, I didn't mean it was a verse that he wrote over and over because he was inspired for this verse. David's simply quoting here. This verse is a quotation. Do you know where from? Let me show you. It's from the book of Moses. David didn't have as much Bible as we have today, but he did have the books of Moses. He said, I have the law and in the law I meditate day and night. And he did. And it's one of the most significant passages anywhere. I wish I had time to go through the whole passage because it's probably the most critical event in the Old Testament in terms of us knowing God. It's when the Lord had rescued his people from Pharaoh and they had gone out into the wilderness and now they were at the mountain and God had given the law and they had broken the law with the, with the golden calf and all these things that happened. It gave God a chance to rethink his salvation. And it's alarming how close in the conversation that the Lord came to just scrubbing the whole thing. Cutting his losses and going back to heaven and enjoying his own splendor. But there's a, there's a conversation, it's kind of a confrontation between Moses, who served the Lord in his generation and who was the mediator of this covenant, the Bible tells us, between Moses and the Lord. And it's a conversation that starts in chapter 33 and it goes for a couple of chapters and it goes on and on. It says, and Moses said to the Lord and the Lord said to Moses and Moses said to the Lord and the Lord said to Moses and back and forth. And, and every time I read it, I'm, I'm a little shocked because did Moses really say that? Did God really reply like that? And back and forth they go and they get into this structure of how Moses wants to see God. He wants some manifestation. He wants some revelation. He wants to know God even more intimately than he had through the cloud and through the tent of meeting and the places where God had met with Moses, the burning bush and all the other places. Moses wanted even more. He wanted more. He was driven to seek. And, and he had kept telling the Lord, since you've bestowed upon me favor. And that's what that word grace is. It's the bestowal of favor. It arises not out of the deserts of the person, but it arises out of the heart of God. And Moses said, Lord, you've given me favor. By the way, there's two people in the Bible the Lord talks about favor, and that is Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Moses, who found favor or grace, same word, in the eyes of the Lord. It's interesting to me, if I had time to run off here on a tangent, I would talk about both of these men talked about bringing rest. The word Noah means rest. It means relief, specifically the relief of the curse. And Noah, finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, had his ministry to bring relief, to bring rest to humanity. And Moses was called upon God to lead his people to the rest, the rest, the relief, the sanctity of Canaan. 
And in this desire to know God and to know him more thoroughly, Moses wanted to see God and God worked out a way whereby he could see something about God, but not see God's face. He said, you cannot see me and live, but I'll put you in a cleft of a rock and I'll, when I pass by, I will cover you up with my hands so that the brilliance of my majesty will not destroy you until I have passed by. And when I finally passed by, you'll see me, but you'll see my back and not my face. And you know all of that was involved. And listen to what the Lord says when he, when he spoke to Moses. He tells him to get up to the mountaintop. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. The Lord walked by, but not in silence. The Lord proclaimed. It's the word for preached. The Lord preaches a lot of sermons in the Bible, more than you realize, direct preaching. And he preached, and this is what the Lord said. The Lord, the Lord, he calls his own name. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The lyrics of knowing God. You want to know God? Well, this is the way God wants to be known. He wants to be known as one who is full of grace and mercy. He is slow to anger. There is a long suffering. There is a forbearance in him. And he's faithful. Steadfast covenant love. Do you know him that way? How long have you been away from the Lord? How long have you, have you skirted the edges of his presence? How long have you sought your own path and not the Lord's? Do you know what the heart of the father is? Think of the prodigal son. He's off speculating in the pig pen about how the father might think and what the father might have and something about servants and so forth. And he was beginning to move toward that repentance which works salvation as he's off in the pig pen. But what he doesn't know until he gets home is the heart of the father. When the father sees him coming afar off and runs and embraces him, and doesn't even listen to the spiel of repentance. He just says, my son, the lost, has been restored. And that's where the Father's heart is today, is to restore every single solitary lost person to himself. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger. He's not wanting to punish you. He's holding and staying his own hand of wrath, calling you to come to him, to return to the Father. 